so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty Radio Show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Brian Hyde. Hello there and welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde here on the America Out Loud Network. Okay, I'm going to start off today with something that's just a little bit out of the ordinary. And, and you know, I'm going to just hazard a guess. And I could be dead wrong, so if, if I'm wrong, please, you know, don't, don't throw too much rotten fruit at me. But I'm guessing that the reason you listen to uh, the America Out Loud Network as well as to programs like the Disciples of Liberty is because at some level, it deeply matters to you to understand what's going on. In particular, you're paying attention to current events, and maybe you recognize things that uh, other people in your life may not. Okay, I'm going to be a little more blunt. I'm guessing that uh, there is a good likelihood that you recognize the propaganda, the misdirection, the dis- and misinformation that is being pumped at us 24-7 through various official, you know, sources that are, are supposed to keep us basically within a mental corral of sorts so that we don't stray too far from the boundaries of approved truth. Safe to say, I mean, if you can agree with that, then you probably won't have too much of a problem with some of the other things I'd like to touch on today. But the problem is, as we look around us, or at least for, for me, this is one of the big struggles. There is so much that is going on that is um, negative, steeped in anger, in, uh, in hatred, in fear. I mean, come on, the, the, the propaganda surrounding the uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict, and I'm talking from all sides, is simply mind-bending. And, and here's the kicker, it's supposed to be. It's supposed to keep us off balance, confused, and, and, and upset Especially if someone questions whatever it is, you know, that we may be sharing on fo- on social media. So I want to start out on a very um, introspective note. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about the importance of watching what you feed your mind. What constitutes fuel for a healthy soul? And then I'm going to get into some really hard, dark stuff in the second part of the show. But <laughs> I want to set the stage for, uh, you know, to, to at least understand why do we do this? Why do we pursue? Why do we even talk about bad news? If, you know, it's, it's not like I just want to go after, you know, sunshine and lollipops and, you know, only those things that are good are worth talking about. I think that we have to face hard truths, not because we're masochists and we enjoy the pain that comes along with facing them, but 
Because to truly understand where you are, let me put this another way. Anybody who's ever had to navigate from one place to another, you cannot get to your intended destination without first truthfully and carefully establishing where you are right now. And if we happen to be in kind of a bad place right now, if if the place we want to get to is a place of greater personal liberty, a place where freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, where um, freedom of association is valued, where the free market is allowed to work its magic in meeting people's needs voluntarily through exchanges between consenting parties. If property rights are to be observed so that you don't have to worry, well, is someone just going to take from me what I've worked hard to earn or to create? Then you've got to be willing to face some, some difficult uh, truths about where we are today in relation to that goal of a place where liberty is the norm rather than the exception. So I want to share with you some advice from Paul Rosenberg. This is a recent essay that he published, and if you haven't subscribed to his freemansperspective.com website, about once a week, sometimes more than once, he'll send out essays which are, you know, these are not, you know, big, lengthy diatribes where he's going on and on about some such thing. Paul Rosenberg has this remarkable gift of being able to distill things down to the essence of why they matter. And it's one of the things that I've just really come to love about his style of writing. And this is no exception. So this essay is called Fuel for Healthy Souls. And he says, we all need certain inputs if we're to be deeply healthy, if we're to have healthy souls. But he says, for children, this is even more important because if they get the right fuel for their souls, they'll not just build better hearts and minds, but they'll have better expectations of life, which will guide them positively and may actually guide their families for generations. So he says, today I'm going to give you a brief list of specific types of fuel for healthy souls. And he says, I'm adapting them from the works of Abraham Maslow, who studied the healthiest people he could find, hoping to determine what sorts of things made them that way. And these are the things that healthy or self-actualizing people need. So if we can furnish them to our children as they develop, well, we'll be directly improving them, our extended families, and the broader world for that matter. But notice it all comes back to to the individual, right? It comes back to what you as an individual are doing to make yourself better. Kind of like Albert J. Nock proposed in, in his one improved unit approach to making a better society. What can you do to improve society? Well, offer society one improved unit. That is yourself. Become the best person you can become. So undeniably good that your very existence threatens the darkness and evil that increasingly wants to encroach into our lives. All right, back to Paul Rosenberg's essay. He says, please understand that if we do this well, the effects we generate will carry not just through our families, but through the world as a whole, and for as long as the human species may endure. So the consequences of this work, that is to say, are permanent. All right, here's the list of what he's talking about. This is fuel for healthy souls. Truth not dishonesty. He says, truth allows our inner processes to work smoothly, while dishonesty complicates them and clogs them. Truth in the home allows children to develop naturally and not burden their minds with the development of predator-prey routines. If they become, if they're constantly on guard against being deceived, 
hardening themselves because deception could slap at them at any time. Although their minds, even their physical brains, will function much differently and much worse. Now, they may be able to pull themselves out of it when they're older, but not without a lot of luck and or work. Secondly, fuel for the healthy soul includes goodness rather than evil. He says, as with the section above, dealing with goodness is far more efficient and far more conducive to health and progress. There is evil in our world, but our internal foundation should not be tainted with it. Dealing with evil should be a set of add-on skills, not foundational skills. Next comes beauty rather than ugliness. He says, children and adults, too, should be nourished with beauty and truth, not filled with the ugly and the vulgar. These things divert our development. Calls, or he says, dark calls to the dark and builds the dark. Good calls to the good and builds the good. Okay, I'm going to hit pause here for a moment because I want to give you a concrete example of what that might look like. Some of you will remember back when the, when the war on terror first began following you know, the, the 9-11 attacks 20 years ago. There were a number of uh, videos that began to circulate among various terrorist groups out there, including Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and the like. And, and primarily we're talking beheadings, and you know these were, these were dramatically staged. They were very, very graphic and ugly things to see of people literally getting their heads sawed off by their, their executioners. And I had a circle of friends at that time who were, you know, very patriotic and very, you know, interested. I'm going to defend against, you know, the terrorists, and those terrorists aren't going to come to my America and, and do this to us. But they became dependent on what I could only describe as a kind of, of war porn. And I'm sorry, this is, I hope this isn't crass. I hope this doesn't sound, you know, uh, too, too uh, graphic. But essentially, to get themselves excited, to get their patriotic, uh, you know, arousal going they would sit there and watch these these snuff videos and and to do so they said well i'm just doing this to remind myself of the evil that's out there this is what we face this is why i've got to be a strong armed fierce defender of freedom and this is where i disagreed with them Many years ago, when, when the internet was still fairly new and, and I was still, you know, learning the ropes of uh, this is good, this is not good, um, I clicked on a video that had been uh, posted on, on some discussion board and it showed Chechen fighters executing a young Russian conscript. And I didn't know, I, I couldn't read Cyrillic, so I couldn't, uh, I couldn't tell or, or whatever the, the language was. I couldn't tell what it said. I just saw, you know, there was a still shot of a guy with a knife being held to his throat. You know, a soldier blindfolded laying on the ground. And I clicked on it. And as the video played out, they cut this kid's throat. And the, the screams and the gurgling um, was, you know, horrific. And I'm sorry, if you're, if you're eating lunch or something, I, I, I'm probably ruining your lunch here. But here's the thing that shocked me. Seeing that video did something to my spirit. It, it, it chased light out of my soul. And, and there was a kind of darkness that, that followed me around for days. I did not feel right for days afterward. After I'd watched that, and, and the, the thought that just kept coming back to me over and over was, oh man, I really wish I hadn't clicked on that. I really wish that I had not seen that. Somehow it left me poorer spiritually than I was before. 
and and I I don't want to feel that way again. And it's you know, I hope you understand. There's a difference between you know, you're just not willing to acknowledge evil, or um, don't invite it into your life. Don't make a place for it in your heart or in your mind. Even if you're trying to tell yourself, well, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to fight evil. And in in that circle of friends who are really into you know the whole uh, yeah you know I'm getting my uh, getting my my arousal up here so I can go fight the enemy. I made the comment on a discussion board at that time saying, you know, um, I don't think anything good comes from watching these snuff videos. I'm not going to watch them because they'd say, you know, if you don't, if you're not standing with us, you know, against the terrorists, you need to watch this video and see what we're up against. And my response was, it's a kind of pornography. And, and it does something to my spirit that I don't want it to do. It, it brings darkness into my life that I don't need. And what was really interesting was uh, there were a couple of combat veterans, people who actually had been to war, who backed me up on this. And they, I don't know that they necessarily agreed with, with my point of view as far as, you know, why, why I wasn't jumping on the bandwagon. But they said, well, nothing good comes from watching this kind of stuff. So I offer that to you just in, in the interest of um, when, when someone proffers this to you to help remind you of, you know, what we're up against. Be very careful. Good calls to the good and builds the good. And, and we should all be trying to bring as much light as possible into our lives as, as we can. I, I guess I would put it this way. Yes, we need to be aware of the dark and the evil that's out there. But if we're focusing the majority of our attention on it, guess what? Where our focus is, is where we will go. That's where our minds and our hearts will go. So maybe give 5% of your attention to awareness of what's out there that's bad. Put the other 95% to work seeking and building light. I wish I could explain it better, but I will just tell you this. You won't regret this approach. All right, back to Paul Rosenberg's essay. He talks about how fuel for a healthy soul includes wholeness and internal harmony rather than splintered and discordant interior universes. Now, that may not make a lot of sense. I had to read it a few times to kind of think, what is he trying to say here? But here's what he's saying. We are organisms, not machines. And when an organism has an internal harmony, it can defend against all sorts of external assaults. Liken it to your immune system, if you will. It's a fundamental operating pattern that, uh, that will be healthy, and the organism can adapt to disease of whatever type, eliminating it quite well in the majority of cases, if you're in harmony. Now, again, if you've seen this in your own immune system, you probably can recognize, oh, yeah, there's truth to that. If I take care of it, it takes care of me. Next on the list, aliveness rather than mechanization, and, and this goes with the last point. We are organisms, which is far better than being mechanisms. Legalistic and mechanical standards, if they're imposed upon an organism, generate entropy in that organism, and the organism may not be able to overcome it. Next is uniqueness, not uniformity. He says conformity is not only an imposition of mechanization upon an organization, but a fundamental insult to a self-referential being. Do you understand what he's saying there? Conformity is anti-self, anti-soul, anti-life. And considering the hormonal and neurological effects it has inside self-referential humans, it might fairly be called a chemical weapon. Next, he talks about completeness rather than fractured things. 
Healthy souls prefer completeness because they can use such things and they can learn from such things. Now, completeness may not always be available, but Paul Rosenberg says it should be grasped when it is. Fractured and discordant inputs to minds, especially young minds, generate static and blockages. And he says they are to be avoided, regardless that many people see them as fine and normal. This next one really resonated with me as well. Simplicity rather than complexity. For the same reasons as above, he says, but note that the arrangement of affairs in the world move toward increasing complexity. In other words, they operate by an opposing principle to the principles of a healthy soul. And here we find another principle. Our own health must be preferred to the demands of a poorly developed, self-contradictory world. I think one of the best quotes I could use to back this up is if you've ever watched the uh, Tremors franchise of movies, right? The underground graboids or whatever. One of my favorite characters is uh, Burt Gummer, played by Michael Gross. Fabulous character. The the penultimate uh, prepper. I mean, he is really the guy who just, you know, he's always prepared for anything. And at some point, the EPA comes out to his place because Burt's killing off these these graboids and... You know, they they come out there, well, there's an Endangered Species Protection Act thing that we're invoking here, and we're just, you know, we've got to protect this species until we know more about it. And the comment Burt Gummer makes is, he says, that's just like government. You take something simple and complicate it. (laughs) So, yeah, less complexity, more simplicity, typically is going to be a better thing for, for your health in all regards. Next, we have richness, not environmental impoverishment or sameness. Now, Paul Rosenberg's point here is we are multicolor beings. We're not monochrome beings. We're able to operate in many different environments to interact beneficially in radically different situations and with people of widely differing backgrounds. Moreover, this is healthy for us. As exercise is to the body, richness of environment is to our souls. And then there's playfulness rather than drudgery. He says, fun is frequently underrated. A good deal of that comes from people passing off their vices as fun. But proper fun is a virtue rather than a vice. Fun engages us broadly and trains us in harmonious effort toward a beneficial goal. Drudgery is very much the opposite. It tends to degrade self-value. There's virtue in accepting drudgery for a valuable end, like a better life for our children. But drudgery itself has no virtue and is to be avoided. And then there's self-sufficiency, not dependency. Humans to function at their full or anywhere near it need to know that they are capable beings. They need to know they're a net positive in the universe. And that's why even significantly damaged people can be helped by doing things for people more damaged than themselves. By it, they see and they know that they are creating benefit and that they deserve the help they've been given by others. Dependency is a poison, a wound upon the human soul. And certainly we've all needed a hand at some point in our lives, but our normal condition has to be self-sufficiency. Even people, even children born into complete dependence need to grow out of it uh, earlier rather than later. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, look, healthful development seems to come from human interaction. And that means conveniences, mostly electronic these days, just aren't suitable replacements. This isn't the same thing as saying that anything electronic or convenient is bad. But he's saying we should imagine or we shouldn't imagine that our kids are going to gain their development that way or that it's just going to happen somehow. He says, I understand the overburdened and burnt out parent. I've been that parent and more than once. But if we can't spend more energy that particular day, we have to remember that somehow those right inputs need to be provided later. So if you can't do it, maybe a grandparent or even an aunt or uncle can. 
Children don't have to be perfectly attended every day. Every parent has limited abilities, and this is a difficult world. But he says, in the end, we can't imagine that these things will happen. We, just, we have to make them happen. Okay, that seems like very solid advice. Now, I want to back it up with one more bit of advice, and that is, we do not walk alone. As overwhelming as things may see, there is power in building a sense of community wherever we happen to be. Annie Holmquist, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, says, Back when the COVID pandemic was young and no one knew what to think about it, she was sitting in her home office listening to a SoundCloud stream of various choral recordings while she worked. One of the selections was a soothing new setting of an old Irish blessing, which runs as follows. May you see God's light on the path ahead when the road you walk is dark. May you always hear, even in your hour of sorrow, the gentle singing of the lark. When times are hard, may hardness never turn your heart to stone. May you always remember when the shadows fall. You do not walk alone. Now, she says, I've continued to listen to this song at various times since those dark days. But recently, she says, I took a closer look at the words and began pondering their significance for today. We still live in dark times in which sorrows abound. And because of that, many of us allow our hearts to harden rather than push through the sorrows and choose joy instead. Annie Holmquist says, as I thought about it, I realized one of the reasons we struggle during hard times is that we've ignored the final line of the blessing above. We think and act as though we walk alone. Now, the idea of a loneliness epidemic has been tossed around pretty regularly. In fact, it was raised most recently by Dr. Dave Chokshi, the commissioner of New York City's Department of Health, where surveys show almost 60% of that city's residents felt lonely some of the time or often while almost 70% felt socially isolated in the four prior weeks. The commissioner wrote in a recent CNBC op-ed, only one-third of respondents said they could count on someone for emotional support. Now, Annie Holmquist says we can certainly blame the pandemic for a part of this loneliness in New York and everywhere else, but does the pandemic really deserve all the blame? The fact is, many Americans have made their loneliness worse through rejection of family and community. Think about it. Instead of choosing a solid and lasting marital relationship early in life, many young people choose serial shack-ups or divorces as their parents did before them and gradually find themselves old and alone. Couples who do choose marriage often push child-rearing off into the distant future because children are an inconvenience to career advancement and to the self-indulgent pursuit of fun. Now, these couples sometimes realize too late that a few little pairs of feet running around would make life more enjoyable. Other people purposely alienate themselves from community. Being neighborly to those who live over the back fence is too much work, the thinking goes, and joining a church, why, that could mean commitment, both time-wise and monetarily, and that can get uncomfortable, especially for those who don't want to bring God into the equation. Now, this tendency toward individualism and the shunning of roots in community come when social conditions become more equal. French political scientist Alexis de Tocqueville noted in his mid-19th century work, Democracy in America, It's then that people owe nothing to any man, and they acquire the habit of always considering themselves as standing alone. This mentality can have its benefits, but it also serves to separate individuals from the very moorings they need to maintain connection and stability in life. De Tocqueville put it this way, Thus, not only does democracy make every man forget his ancestors, but it hides his descendants and threatens his and separates his contemporaries rather from him. It throws him back forever upon himself alone, and threatens in the end to confine him entirely within the solitude of his own heart. Now that's a sad situation, but it's not one that can't be remedied. 
Annie Holmquist says the more we immerse ourselves in community, whether it's finding a church and getting involved or sharing kindness and conversation with those at work or in our neighborhoods, the less we will be alone. But she says the best way to ensure we are not alone, as the little Irish poem above implies, is to make sure that we are walking with God. Being on good terms with Him not only gives us constant companionship with the divine, it also opens the door for greater connection with other human beings who walk the same path in following Him, ensuring that we truly do not walk alone. I don't know, maybe that seems a little touchy-feely for you. I, you know, that's, that's for you to decide. But more than anything, I think people who realize they're not alone are able to summon the courage necessary to do what's right in any circumstance. We'll be back right after these messages. In today's world, there's no escaping the headlines filled with warnings about emerging viruses and dangerous superbugs. Genesis is the only technology that safely and effectively obliterates harmful pathogens both on the air and on surfaces. Genesis plus HOCL neutralize these threats to your environment in just seconds. Find out more about this amazing technology at genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a 15% discount. With Genesis, you'll be prepared for what's next. Dr. Vladimir Zelenko knows a thing or two about the immune system. He was nominated for a Nobel Prize for his early COVID-19 treatments, and now he's offering his Z-Stack supplements to our listeners at a discount. Just go to zstacklife.com slash freedom. That's zstacklife.com slash freedom. Invincible American spirit drives the most audacious experiment in the history of self-government. America Out Loud celebrates the American spirit every minute of every day. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty here on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Brian Hyde. Thank you so much for being part of our audience today. So I spent the first half of the program hopefully building up some hope and light, a little something to reassure you. And I I know how it can be 
to feel like, you know, I'm the only one who cares about this, or at least in my circle of influence, I'm the only person who, who sees what's going on. And maybe you feel like you're banging your head against the wall trying to wake up other people to notice what is happening all around us. Well, take heart. You are most certainly not alone. I think all of us would be shocked to find out how many people actually are, are concerned about similar things and, and maybe even striving in the same ways that we are. But we're, you know, tied to our own lives. We have our own things. How am I going to keep my gas tank full? How am I going to keep my fridge full? How am I going to keep my job, especially if you've had that choice of jab or job forced upon you? The world's complicated. Now, I'm going to touch on some things that uh, will definitely illustrate some of the challenges that we are up against. And I'm going to just warn you straight up, what I'm about to share with you is, is pretty concerning from the standpoint that uh, it's, it uh, points to forces that are likely beyond your control and my control that, uh, that nonetheless have very real impact in our lives. This doesn't mean that we're helpless. It doesn't mean that we get to claim victim status and now everybody owes us, you know, something. It's just something we need to be aware of. And I hope you understand. I'm not telling you this to just, you know, to prove how right I am or how smart I am and I know more than anybody else because I don't. I mean, I, this, as far as, you know, why should, why should you care about this? Because you have to understand what's going on around you in the sense that uh, if, if there is danger approaching, you need to be aware of where it's coming from, why it is a danger, and then you can start to formulate responses to it. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, how we are facing a rising danger of food shortages and rationing. And, and the biggest danger is going to be the government response. Now, I'm just going to lay out just kind of a very basic uh, foundation here. Why would you say that there are going to be problems with the food supply? Well, the problems have been building for some time. And if you've seen over the last year, the, the breakdowns in the supply chains, the, the firing of truckers, the ships waiting offshore to be offloaded and so forth, that's part of the problem. The distribution part is tough. Gas prices, I just was talking with some truck drivers the other day. Uh, they, they were dropping off a, a chicken coop that uh, my wife and I had purchased because as part of our self-sufficiency, yep, we're going back to having yard birds. Got to have a place for those hens to, to roost and to lay eggs for us. And as I was talking to these guys, I asked them, so uh, what are you hearing from people concerning, you know, the, the price of gas? I mean, diesel's up over five bucks a gallon. That kind of stuff doesn't just, well, you know, that's tough, but, you know, the, that's the price of, of doing business. Well, the price of doing business is, you know, get ready for $10 a gallon for milk. Because in the end, that cost is always going to be passed on to the consumer. Businesses can't stay afloat otherwise. And you're starting to see this. When, when you have a service call made to your home, the person who comes out is likely to have to add a fuel surcharge to offset the cost of getting their work vehicle out to your place and back. So we're seeing the rising costs. We're seeing this in the grocery store. Uh, we're seeing uh, this is one of the big ones. With the conflict in Ukraine, there's a very serious disruption to the distribution of food worldwide. Not because Ukraine is the one country that everybody depends on, but there are a lot of people who depend on Russian-grown wheat, Ukrainian-grown wheat, and other grains. How many, how many fields do you suppose right now are being planted? 
And with the rising cost of fuels, how many people have access, how many farmers have ready access to fertilizer or the oils and greases and so forth that they need to keep their farm machinery maintained and, and running smoothly? I know it's, it's starting to say, whoa, this is, this is getting complicated quick. But all of these things have effect. China just had the biggest winter wheat crop failure uh, within record within recent history, anyways. You look at the disruption that the conflict in Europe right now is causing, and it's it's upsetting shipping. It's upsetting, you know, the the smooth movement of goods between countries, and food is a big part of this. Now, there are those who say, well, this is a deliberate thing. This is part of that great reset that the World Economic Forum is talking about. I don't think they're wrong. I think that there is a certain um, engineered quality to it. Let's, let's turn to Brandon Smith. He's got a great article on alt-market.us. The stagflation trap will lead to universal basic income and food rationing. He says, this past week during a conference discussing Biden's Build Back Better scheme, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was confronted with questions on skyrocketing inflation. After referring to higher gas prices as the Putin tax, she went on to offer perhaps the dumbest or most insidious denial on the causes of inflation that I've ever heard, stating, when we're having this discussion, it's important to dispel some of those who say, well, it's the government spending. No, it isn't. The government spending is doing the exact reverse, reducing the national debt. It is not inflationary, end quote. Now, Brandon Smith says, look, anyone with a basic understanding of economics and how central banks operate must have felt their brains explode when they heard this. He says, I know I did. But before I get into the numerous reasons why this claim is completely false in every way, he says, I want to give a warning. It's very easy in this situation to assume that Pelosi and even Biden are making these arguments because they're too stupid to grasp the fundamentals of debt creation, money velocity, and fiat. That said, never mistake evil for mere ignorance. Brandon Smith says all higher-level representatives of the White House are briefed by economic experts that could read spin doctors well before they answer any questions on inflation, and the things they say have been carefully scripted. It's possible Pelosi mixed her lies up a little bit, but the narrative the establishment is trying to promote is well-planned. Asserting that money creation is a counterbalance to inflation instead of the cause is not brilliant, but it's not designed to convince many people. It's just designed to create confusion. He says, let's not forget that only last year, these same people were telling the public that inflation was purely transitory and there was nothing to worry about. Now they're trying to cover their tracks and the culpability of the Federal Reserve. He says, I believe the goal here is to simply stall for time until the stagflationary collapse unfolds. They have the perfect scapegoat as they launch an economic war with Russia and likely China in the near term. And the effects of this war will hurt the U.S. and Europe far more than many realize. So to quickly break down Pelosi's bizarre statement, Brandon Smith says, I'm going to make a couple of root observations. First, paying down the national debt has nothing to do with reducing inflation. Even if you could somehow gather enough assets to pay off the national debt without creating new dollars from thin air, the current inflationary problems would persist. 
there would still be the matter of tens of trillions of dollars already fabricated and floating around the global economy. Inflation is directly related to money supply and money velocity. The national debt is secondary to the issue. Second, he says we need to ask the most obvious question. If government spending reduces the national debt by paying it down, well, then why hasn't the national debt gone down? The Fed and the U.S. government created over $6 trillion in fiat money in 2020 alone, and the national debt only went higher. In fact, the explosion of national debt correlates directly to the amount of dollars created by the Fed to supply various stimulus policies and bailouts over the years. The national debt in 2008 at the onset of the credit crash was around $10 trillion. It took hundreds of years to reach that level. In the span of only 14 years of Fed money creation, the debt has now tripled to over $30 trillion. So Brandon Smith says, I'll say it again, government spending and Fed stimulus has tripled the size of our national debt in less than 14 years. And of course, inflation has spiked as the amount of dollars injected into the global system causes the buying power of our currency to decline dramatically. More fiat dollars equals less buying power. This is reality. Also, using Russia as a scapegoat just doesn't hold up on the logic meter. The assertion by Pelosi, Biden, and many establishment leftists has been that blocking Russian oil to the U.S. is leading to inflation in multiple sectors of the economy. But it's necessary to stop Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Well, one might assume, then, that we use a lot of Russian oil. But the truth is, we don't. Russian crude oil only makes up 3% of U.S. imports. Therefore, there's no way that sanctions on Russian oil are the cause of rising prices. Nor do these sanctions have any effect on the Kremlin. Inflation was hitting 40-year highs back in December of last year, well before the war in Ukraine. In fact, news on the Fed's interest rate hikes moves oil markets for more than news, far more than news on Ukraine. So, to summarize, he says, I have a special message for Nancy Pelosi. Please, so do us a favor. Please do us a favor, rather, and shut up, you blood-sucking crone. (laughs) The American people are smarter than you, and your propaganda script is full of holes. Now, onward to other important issues. He says, this narrative is not only about protecting the Biden administration, It's also about protecting the Federal Reserve. As former Fed Chair Alan Greenspan once openly admitted, the central bank answers to no one, and that includes government officials. Many theorize that it's actually the central banks and international banks that make the majority of policy decisions for government, and politicians have very little say in matters. In fact, he says, I'm inclined to agree, given the number of banking elitists, elites rather, and globalist Council on Foreign Relation members that seem to permeate every single presidential cabinet. Rather, This includes Trump's cabinet just as much as Biden's. But he says, Biden is an empty shell of a man, barely able to maintain a semblance of sanity. So who do you think really runs the country? Brandon Smith says, I've been writing a lot lately about how establishment elites actually benefit greatly from a stagflationary crisis, as long as they are able to divert blame to other sources and are not targeted for retribution by the public. One of these benefits includes a cover event for an agenda that the World Economic Forum calls the Great Reset, which is essentially just another name for New World Order. Now, he says, isn't it marvelous that the government and media hailstorm of COVID fear porn that was bombarding Americans only a few months ago 
has now suddenly vanished. What happened? Well, the establishment was defeated. That's what happened. He says, with conservatives and moderates in red states in the U.S. and in nations around the world fighting back against lockdowns and vaccine passports, the globalists must have realized the battle in the long run was lost. Suddenly, all talk of passports and medical tyranny is gone. Now, he says, I realize there are some people out there that give the globalists too much credit and still argue the COVID scheme was some kind of success. But he says those people are wrong. If you want to see what success looks like, go to China, where hundreds of millions are still suffering from lockdowns today and no one can do anything without an up-to-date vaccine passport and QR code. In China, the vax passports are also used for tracking of the population as well as an element of their social credit scores. This is what the globalists wanted for all nations, including the U.S., and they didn't get it. Therefore, it's on to the next crisis. Now, the stagflation threat, he says, worries me more than any other for a number of reasons, and it's not just because of the potential for extreme poverty. As we all know, the strategy of order out of chaos is about creating enough desperation within a target population that the people are willing to give up their freedoms in exchange for a semblance of safety and normalcy. But what specific controls would the establishment seek out? See, stagflation has the ability to trigger much higher prices and necessities, while it simultaneously drags GDP down along with wages, jobs, manufacturing, etc. There's also the very real threat of government price controls, which would suffocate production and reduce the supply of goods even further. We're not quite to this point yet, but the danger is approaching fast. And he says there are two initiatives within the World Economic Forum's Great Reset Agenda that parallel stagflation almost exactly. And he says, I predict we will be hearing about them often in the coming year. Now, the first initiative is the concept of universal basic income, or UBI. We heard about this a lot a few years ago, but the idea didn't stick too well with the American public. The truth, however, is that we have already had UBI for a time in the form of COVID stimulus checks. This helicopter money was funded by over seven, by over $6 trillion in central bank fiat created from nothing and then directly injected into citizen accounts. Now, it was barely enough for people to live on by itself, but in conjunction with other welfare programs and unemployment checks, millions of people were living the easy life at home for well over a year. The money was so easy that the policy actually triggered a national labor shortage. The small taste of UBI might be given might have given people the wrong impression about such stimulus programs. After the COVID programs, the public might be led to believe that universal basic income, income would result in a carefree life with enough money to go around. By themselves, without the benefit of other welfare programs, the COVID checks would not have been enough to keep people housed and fed. In fact, the standard of living for the average person would have to fall dramatically for UBI to work at all. Enter stagflation. Brandon Smith says, with economic decline crushing our living standards, it could be easier for the establishment to lure the public into universal basic income. Along with communist-style price controls across the board and a reduced starvation, or I'm sorry, a reduced population due to starvation and poverty, the public would be able able to survive, but just barely. There would no longer be a such a thing as personal wealth, only the scraps that governments and bankers are willing to throw people. On top of that, 
resistance to authoritarianism would be nearly impossible. Once the government takes on the role of mommy and daddy and the only source of food and housing for the citizenry, well, then they're far less to stand against any kind of abuse the establishment wants to dish out. UBI, he says, is a candy-coated trap which breeds dependency in a population. Free money is an addictive drug, and America just had a big taste during the pandemic. Now, this leads us into the second World Economic Forum Great Reset Program, which is the concept of the shared economy. The globalists think you should own nothing, have no privacy, and be happy about it. The initial danger here involves rationing. A government cannot institute UBI measures during a stagflationary crisis without also instituting price controls. Because otherwise, the fiat stimulus used to provide the UBI checks would only create more inflation in prices. If UBI is meant to offset inflation, but it creates more inflation, then UBI becomes useless. This is another little fact that people like Pelosi will try to gloss over when they claim that printing money helps fight inflation. So when price controls are implemented, manufacturing will implode further. Because price controls mean producers of necessities will not be able to make much of a profit or they'll make no profit at all. There will be no incentive to produce among the people that actually know how to produce. And these people are not easy to replace. The supply of goods will not be able to meet demand. Naturally, the government will take the opportunity to limit the amount of goods any single person or family is allowed to purchase or stockpile through rationing cards. That send a little chill up your spine? All right, let's continue on to the finish here. These kinds of measures have been used in the past, usually during wartime or under communist regimes. But in this case, Brandon Smith says the rationing will be digital and permanent, and it will be designed to further control food and other resources as a means to prevent rebellion by the public. If you can't store more than a week's worth of necessities at any given time, then your ability to defy the government is non-existent unless you know how to live off the land or have access to black markets. All you have to do is cut off your monthly UBI checks. All they have to do is cut off your UBI checks and ration an account and then just sit back and watch you starve. Now, Brandon Smith says, I will cover solutions to these problems in an article coming soon, but he says, I think it's important that people within the liberty movement and outside of the liberty movement start thinking about the scale of the crisis we are facing. It's not just about economic disaster and adapting to the loss of supply chains and stable currencies. It's not just about survival. It's also about fighting back against the inevitable government response to the crisis. They will try to take advantage of people's pain and use it to lure people into slavery. This cannot be allowed to happen. So let's sit back for just a moment and just ask, does, is what he's saying, is it making sense? I think so. And, you know, I, I don't know what the, the solution is in terms of, well, if I can just stockpile enough food, although I would certainly encourage people, if you live in a place or if you are in a condition where, where you can start putting aside or you've already been putting aside food for a potential rainy day, I think that's probably wise. I mean, I look to my grandparents and I look to my parents. My parents were born during the Great Depression. My grandparents lived through the Great Depression. 
and it's very curious, but uh, when, when my grandparents passed away, my aunts and uncles and my mom went to, to clear out, you know, my grandparents' house, and something they found was that my grandparents threw away almost nothing. Now, that doesn't mean that they were hoarders. They had a neat little home, and, you know, they... They accumulated stuff, but it certainly wasn't like you would see on an episode of Hoarders. However, as they were cleaning out my grandparents' home, they found, for instance, grocery bags. Every grocery bag they had ever brought home neatly folded and stored away in a drawer somewhere. Why would they keep that? Shoelaces, even broken shoelaces, neatly wrapped up and stored Aluminum foil, same kind of thing. They washed it, they reused it. It's because they lived through a time where even if you had money, there were many things you just simply couldn't get because they were in very short supply or they were being rationed. I mean, during World War II, rationing was also a thing. And it uh, it created in them, um, I guess what you could call a mindset of scarcity, but... It was a mindset of scarcity based on the reality that those items were scarce. And so the mantra became, well, we hang on to this just in case we might need it sometime down the road. Or if we don't need it, maybe somebody else will. Something we can barter. Now, I understand how foreign that sounds to us in our time, right? I mean, I can jump online and in a day I have the Amazon truck sitting outside my house dropping off whatever it is that I need. And that's great until it doesn't work. So we get into a time where people are starting to really see fully empty store shelves. Is that an oxymoron? Truly empty store shelves. And and they realize that supply is not coming anytime soon or it's unknown when the next shipment of fresh produce is coming or meat or anything like that. I think you are going to see people start to panic. And they may be more susceptible to government wooing them with, well, you know, we see this problem too. Maybe they'll give us the old Bill Clinton line, I feel your pain. Do they really? Is that a gamble you're willing to take? I mean, are you willing to trust whoever's in power at the time to feed your family or for that matter to rely on the kindness of strangers to feed your family? Again, I'm not trying to scare anybody. I'm just trying to point out that everything you do to bolster your position of self-sufficiency is a good thing. It puts you in a position where you are not dependent upon either the people who want to rule you or the kindness of strangers. And to me, that seems like a, a really good position to be in. So let's take a moment and let's, let's go back to the root of the problem, though. Let's talk about inflation for a moment. If inflation comes from too many dollars chasing the same amount of goods and services, in other words, new money being created out of thin air without something of intrinsic value backing it, and then those dollars being dumped into the economy, yes, it dilutes the purchasing power of every single dollar. And this is something that maybe you're starting to see at the gas pump. It's something you're starting to see in the grocery store. I, I went and got a burger and fries for the first time in a long time last night. Burger, fries, and a small drink. 12 bucks. Now, this is not from some major metropolis. This is not, you know, airport prices. This is not New York City prices. This is small town America. 12 bucks for a burger, fries, and a drink. 
yeah, it's it's getting real. Ron Paul says, well, you want to solve the problem? And the Fed, and you'll get more Doritos in the next bag of Doritos that you buy. Here's, here's what he means. He says, the U.S. government's consumer price index indicates prices have increased 7.9% in the last year. And while this statistic shows the highest rate of increase in 40 years, it still understates the amount prices have increased, in part because the statistic is manipulated to minimize reported price increases. So a stealth form of inflation is called shrinkflation. Shrinkflation occurs when businesses reduce the size of a product so its price can stay the same. For example, Frito-Lay recently began putting fewer chips in a bag of Doritos, reducing the weight of a bag about 5% from 9.75 ounces to 9.25 ounces in the process. Now, of course, changing or charging the same for less is a type of price increase. This week, he says the Federal Reserve increased the interest rate by 0.25%. Now, that increase is said to be a step in combating inflation. The Fed also announced that it plans to raise rates six more times this year. However, even if the Fed follows through on this plan, rates will only increase from near zero to around 1.9%. This is unlikely to effectively combat inflation. The Fed also indicated a commitment to reducing its almost $9 trillion balance sheet, although its official statement did not specify details such as when the Federal Reserve would start reducing holdings. Ron Paul says the Federal Reserve is facing a dilemma of its own making. Continuing to keep rates low would cause a dollar crisis. A dollar crisis can then lead to a major economic meltdown worse than the Great Depression. However, if the Fed were to increase rates to anything close to where they would be in a free market, that would dramatically increase the federal government's debt payments burden. He says the only reason Congress's reckless spending and the Fed's reckless monetary policy have not yet caused a major economic crisis is the dollar's world reserve currency status. One of the pillars of the dollar status is the use of the dollar in the international oil market. The petrodollar, though, may soon be replaced. Saudi Arabia is considering selling some oil for Chinese yuan instead of U.S. dollars. India is considering using Russian rubles and Indian rupees instead of U.S. dollars in trade with Russia, including for the purchase of Russian oil. This will help get around U.S. sanctions. Concerns about the stability of the U.S. economy, combined with the increasing resentment of our foreign policy, will cause other nations to abandon the dollar. Now, Ron Paul says economic instability can lead to political instability, violence, and an increase in support for authoritarian movements. A way to avoid this is for those of us who know the truth to spread the ideas of liberty. When a critical mass of people demands fiscal responsibility and constitutionally limited government, the politicians will comply. To put an end to the welfare warfare state, Congress can drastically reduce the military budget, end all corporate welfare, and shut down all unconstitutional cabinet departments. The savings can be used to pay down debt and to support those truly dependent on government programs while responsibility for providing assistance returns to local institutions and private charities. He says Congress should also restore a sound monetary policy by auditing, then ending, the Fed, as well as by repealing both legal tender laws and capital gains taxes on precious metals and cryptocurrencies. Finding, or rather, ending the era of welfare, warfare, state, and fiat currency can lead to a transition to a new era of liberty, peace, prosperity, and full bags of Doritos. Okay, I like that he threw in that nice object lesson there with the bags of Doritos. 
So if you're not as knowledgeable as you would like to be on monetary policy, this is one of those things that I don't know can be sorted out or that you can consider yourself, yes, yes, I'm very fluent in what uh, modern monetary policy is versus what sound monetary policy is, you know, just over lunch with someone who knows what's going on. How important is it to you to understand these things? I have a dear friend. His name is Albert. He has uh, given very serious study to this for about the last 12, 13 years. And by that, I mean he has thrown himself into studying as many sources as possible, doing the heavy lifting required to get his mind around this issue. There's a price to be paid if you really want to know what's going on. Whether it's having to do with uh, you know the Federal Reserve, whether it's having to do with monetary policy, anything else. Even if it's just understanding your basic rights and why it's essential that you stand up for them, claim them, use them, and defend them in the face of all the different systems that seem determined to rule your life. So my advice is let's start paying that price. You want to be a disciple of liberty? You got to learn what you don't already know and sweat while you're learning. I'm Brian Hyde. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network. Mm-hmm.